Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 58. Let's talk about the history of food safety planning and how to create your food safety team. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. So welcome to episode 58 of the podcast, Dr. P in the house here. And we just finished our, um, our quarterly team meeting where I had my whole team in and we planned out uh, whatever needs planning for the, rest of, uh, for the rest of this quarter. And we got, we got so much stuff figured out. We got the whole entire um, like webinar curriculum figured out, um, the publishing for next year, for everything I'm going to publish next year. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, we got all the classes that I'm teaching in Q1, and we started planning our in-person event in May. So um, look for, look for uh, um, I guess, announcements <laughs> coming soon about our in-person uh, event in May. This is especially for all of my Power Group members who are listening. We are getting together live in person in May. <laughs> uh, so put that on your calendar. Uh, like, like, just start thinking about that. So we um, we did like I gather my I gather my people. Um, I try and do it once a quarter. I don't always get to it once a quarter. And we work on um, business modeling. We do a state of the the state of the union, if you will, of Dirigo food safety. And it's super fun because I get all this input from my. Um, from my people <laughs> and I'm a much better business for it. And uh, I started the meeting by um, telling my employees how very, very grateful I am. And I'm going to call them out publicly. I am super grateful for my employees. So um, I, I'm, I'm just going to basically go through this for you for who my employees are. So the other basically full-time person we have in the company is my husband. So we're a family business and my husband, Andrew, uh, is on the other side of a lot of the emails that you get and he uh, keeps us on the straight and narrow. He, um, he's really good at solving like day-to-day problems in the business and I'm super grateful that he was able to really join us full-time this year. Then we have Pam. So Pam does the marketing and she is a genius at connecting with customers and figuring out the language. Okay, so y'all might have noticed that I have doctor speak. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, it's, you know, doctor, uh, the, the doctor speak gets translated by Pam <laughs> so that it's a little more approachable. So, and then we have, um, and then we have Ross and Ross is my technical writer. And so he and I, like we spent a lot of today going back and forth about 90 day validations uh, for some of our customers and uh, HACCP planning and doing Doing like the nitty gritty of what makes a what makes a product shelf stable when you have a multi hurdle intervention to create something shelf stable under the USDA. So that's what I talked about at lunch. What did you talk about at lunch? And then um, and then I have Tanil and Tanil really works on the back end and she's pretty awesome. She is my QA staff. So one of the things that I operate at in this space is I am what's called like a, a fractional C suite executive for most of you. Okay, so for most of my clients, I am like kind of your part-time chief operating officer, chief quality officer, right? 
And because, you know, like to get me full time, to get somebody like me full time in your business is more than six figures plus benefits. And I mean, like kind of a lot more than six, than, than $100,000. Like the going rate for somebody like me in one single business for everything that I do um, is pretty expensive. And so I, I essentially function as, as like a fractional chief quality officer, which is amazing because then everybody gets to benefit. Everybody gets to benefit from me. But in order for me to do my job well, I have Tennille backing me up. And Tennille is brilliant with language, and she's the best copy editor I have ever met in my entire life. <laughs> so, But she is also the one that put together our own internal ISO system. So when I talk to all y'all about setting up SQF or BRC, or, you know, management control structures, I know whereof I speak because I have all of those processes around management control. We work on those internally. And this quarter, one of the things that we've really been working on is customer responsiveness and customer engagement. And what does that mean? And what is that? What does that look like for our business? I am actually going to a mastermind this weekend where I will be looking at projects for the next quarter and what we are going to do in the next quarter and it's super exciting and what's really awesome is is you guys can do this in your business this is not you know the, the, the planning that I do is not just for service businesses it's for all businesses and you know one of the things I talk about um, when I do if you guys catch the webinars and things like that we had an amazing webinar yesterday um, and I'm I'm just super pumped we had like more than more than 30% of the people who signed up for the webinar actually showed up which believe it or not is an amazing statistic most people sign up for webinars and never attend if you want to catch the webinar check it out on the videos section of the proofing box so those of you who are already members thank you if you're not a member why not join uh, and go check out the videos we did a great webinar yesterday and it's actually going to set the pace for all the webinars we're doing next year. I am super excited to start rolling this stuff out, so stay tuned for that information. Webinars are going to be on the third Wednesday of the month at one o'clock, um, and they're going to be super incredibly valuable, and I just, I can't wait. Mm. So anyway, um, so the quarterly planning that I do, y'all can do in your businesses as well. And I would go back through the videos, and we did our quarterly planning according to the proofing box methodology that I use. Like, what results are we trying to create? What's the process that we're trying to create? And how do we manage our minds to do that? So if as we roll over into the new quarter, and I'm starting this now because, of course, holidays, right? Um, normally, I wouldn't start it quite this early in the, in, in, in the previous quarter. But if you guys have questions about that, bring them to office hours. I would absolutely love to, to answer your questions about that sort of thing. And so with that, let's dive into the meat of the matter around um, this month's uh, topic. So this month, or, or this week's topic. So this week, we are going to, we are starting what's going to be the first in a series of podcasts that's actually going to take us through the new year. You know that um, in on the even weeks, I do one of the topics, I do, I do a topic around building up the first three assets in your business, either your mind, your employees' minds, or the trust and credibility that you create with your clients. That's an asset in your business. Every other week in the podcast, so on the even weeks of the podcast, we work on the next two assets in your business, which is either products that you create 
or your processes. Every other week this, this um, uh, for the rest of the year, um, and then a little bit into the new year, just because it's five, um, we are doing uh, the five pre-steps of food safety planning. So today I'm gonna do an intro about how all this stuff came together, and then what is the first step of creating a food safety plan. Your food safety plan is a product in your business, okay? There is a process to create it. By working on this and paying attention to this, you are building assets in your business. When we build assets on our business, that always preconditions us for success, for creating wealth and community as we drive ourselves forward in our business. Because of course, that's what we're all about here at Dirigo Food Safety is creating wealth and community, right? So when we start, Looking at that, one of the reasons, you know, like one of the ways I came up with this idea about what we're doing around here, because I think pretty deeply about this kind of stuff, but what we're doing around here is creating wealth and community. And I spent a long time thinking about that. And I came up with wealth and community because, you know, the idea is that we are in businesses and businesses are in the business of creating value for customers right and so if if you are if you are creating value for customers that's what you get paid for <laughs> okay and so that's where we talk about wealth what's less easy to define in our businesses is a sense of community but a sense of community is super super important and this is one of the reasons why I love doing HACCP-based systems, okay? Because the very first step in your HACCP-based system is creating your food safety team, all right? And I'm gonna go into a little bit of history behind HACCP and food safety planning so you can understand why we lighted on create a team as the first step. It has become incredibly apparent to me as your coach that even if you don't pay me, still your coach, because <laughs> you pay me in time if you're listening to this, if you're listening to the podcast, and I very much value that, and I very much appreciate it. But food safety planning is a team sport, okay? And it's a team sport for a lot of different reasons, which I will, which I will get into, but one of the privileges that I have is to help you guys build your own community. Your teams, your teams and your customers is a community within your business, all right? And when you approach your, your business as a community creation exercise, amazing worlds will open up for you. Okay, and the ability to do that and the ability to help people do that is a joy and a privilege. And I invite you to step into the idea that your food safety plan is a way to communicate your values around community. Because my friends, it takes a community to, to, to bring your food safety plan into existence, all right? Because we all work in teams. And even if you are a solopreneur and I am your only team member, we are a team, right? And 
when you approach your food safety planning as a team sport, you will create a food safety plan that can be team executed. And that changes so much <laughs> about what you're actually doing. And so when you, when you allow it to be a team exercise, all of a sudden it's way easier because it isn't just the lift of one person. Okay. And the whole history of documented food safety programming came about because we had people working together. They were working together. Okay. So those of you who have taken my preventive controls class or my meat and poultry hassle class have heard me say this, but I, for those of you who haven't, and it bears repeating, Documented food safety planning came to us when we decided to put astronauts into space. And there was, a, uh, there was a gr an agreement between NASA, Pillsbury, and this outfit in Natick, Massachusetts called the Natick Food Labs. It's the Department of Defense Food Lab, and it's still there in Natick. Um, which now, if you've been to Natick recently, seems like a really strange place to have a Department of Defense food lab, but it wasn't always like that. <laughs> the Natick Mall and Neiman Marcus didn't always look like that. <laughs> and, um, and what happened was, was Pillsbury would make the food and the Natick labs would test the food, but all they were doing was finished product testing. Finished product testing is an incredibly expensive way to find out whether or not you have pathogens in your food. And they had another problem. They destroyed so much food in the process of finished product testing, they didn't have enough to send up into space with the astronauts, all right? So you can see where this would, this would be an issue. You literally can't manufacture enough food to, 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 to meet the mission, right? And so the, uh, the Natick Food Labs folks talked to the engineers over at NASA and they said, how do you guys solve this problem? All right, because I promise you, NASA is not in the business of finished product testing. Because finished product testing in NASA is launch. And we do not find out without disastrous consequences, as we all know, that our space shuttles, our spacecraft don't work at launch. Okay, NASA has basically had basically organized itself to not find out that things don't work at launch because people die, right? Your business cannot organize itself that your food is not safe by virtue of people dying, okay? That is not how it works, <laughs> all right? And so if you, take a, if you think about it, what originally happened was teams of people got together to solve problems because we solve problems better in teams, all right? And so the, uh, the Natick food folks and the Pillsbury food folks said to NASA, how do you do it? And NASA said, we do failure mode effect analysis. Okay, so for the engineers in the crowd, you know what failure mode effect analysis is, but for the non-engineers in the crowd, failure mode effect analysis is where you take your raw materials and you test your raw materials for how they might fail. You know how food fails? Fails with hazards, physical, chemical, and microbial hazards, right? We'll be going over what those are in further podcasts. So physical, chemical, microbial, microbial hazards, right? So that's how your raw materials can fail, okay? Then you take your raw materials and you assemble them. And you ask, how can they fail? Guess what? They will fail with physical, chemical, or microbial hazards. And then you assemble them some more. 
and they will fail. Physical, chemical, microbial hazards. And failure mode effect analysis is then once you understand how your product is going to fail, okay, you say, what can I do to prevent it? What can I do to control it? And that, my friends, is the short version of how to write a food safety plan. You will write a better food safety plan if you do this in community, <laughs> okay? If you ask each other questions, if you ask your customers questions, if you ask me questions, if you go on, if you came here from the Salt Cured Pig, where I'm, a, I'm the food safety admin over on the Salt Cured Pig, if you ask questions over there on any of the other places that I'm an admin on where I try and help educate folks around the hazards that are associated with your food production. So last night I did a, uh, I did a presentation with the Colorado State University Extension Meat School where I talked about food safety starts on the farm and biosecurity. And a lot of y'all have, have heard my biosecurity talk. Um, and it's basically understanding, biosecurity is the same thing, it's basically understanding where can things go wrong and how do I prevent it. When you have that conversation in community, you will have better conversations. And y'all know that. That's not that hard, right? So that's how all of this stuff started. All right. And we named it hazard analysis for critical control points uh, because it made more sense after they did it than failure mode effect analysis. Um, I guess it was, I don't know, more approachable language. Don't ask me. <laughs> I'm not the one that codified this stuff. So the HACCP planning process came into effect so that we could get astronauts into space. It came about, it developed over the course of years within the context of a massively more complexifying, if that's a word, food production system where there were a lot more inputs, a lot more different kinds of um, raw materials coming into it, and a lot more places where food was actually manufactured, and a lot more boundaries and borders where things, um, where food was going across. And then, of course, food manufacturing technology was also um, imp improving and changing by leaps and bounds, but we were at this point where the technology for food manufacture was not being kept up with by our food safety laws, okay? So for those of you who are familiar with this or have taken the HACCP or Preventive Controls class, you know that the Meat Products Inspection Act was passed in 1906, and that basically gave the USDA jurisdiction over red meat um, slaughter and production to check for safety and sanitation, or like sanitation and sanitary dressing, and it gave them jurisdiction to actually do that. So it established the USDA as the federal inspection authority. Then we had the Poultry Products Inspection Act um, over the meat and poultry side of the house. I came about, I think, in 58, which established the same thing in poultry. In the 30s, we had the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, and that was the landmark act that gave the F that created a, the FDA, I'm pretty sure, and then uh, gave the FDA jurisdiction over the manufacture of food, drugs, and cosmetics. <laughs> okay, and, the, and actually I was having a conversation about this the other day with somebody. Uh, food, drugs, and cosmetics are all theme and variations on the same things of what do you make and how do you make it and how do you know you're making what you said you were going to make, all right, which is what we ask when we do food safety planning. And so all of this stuff was happening all at the same time, okay? And then we had some really massive things go wrong. And, we're, and now we've moved up to kind of like the early 70s. There was a recall of Vichy Soie soup, and Vichy Soie soup is potato leek soup. 
And this potato leek soup had botulism. Botulism is um, a, what we call a commensal organism in the soil. It is commonly associated with root vegetables. Um, potatoes and leeks are root vegetables. And the company that was making it, uh, and I believe it was a Massachusetts company, had no idea what time, how long, so what time, what temperature and what pressure it was canning their soup at. And the cans were swelling and, and people were dying of botulism. And the FDA had no jurisdiction to go in there and do anything about it. It actually took the, these people, this, this canning company was literally killing people and the, it took the FDA three years to shut them down. Okay, so there were updates to the law. We got the low acid canned food requirement. We got uh, good manufacturing practices. And then it expanded based on other things that went wrong in the food system. So we had low acid canned foods come around. Then we had fisheries hassle because a bunch of people died from, um, uh, from varying hazards associated with fish, mostly histamine. Um, not, not so much botulism, but Definitely histamine. We had problems with histamine. We still have problems with histamine. A big recall this uh, this fall around histamine and fish. Um, so we had the fisheries requirements, and then um, then in the early 90s we had a couple of things happen. Or late 80s we had uh, the Odawalla Juice Company killed a couple of kids with unpasteurized juice. So we passed juice HACCP. And then what most of y'all are probably familiar with is the Jack in the Box case in the early 90s where Jack in the Box was serving hamburgers and it had no idea what time and temperature it was cooking those hamburgers. And it gave a bunch of kids sugar toxin E. coli and they went into renal failure and uh, four of them or something died. And the USDA was sued by an outfit um, uh, from Seattle, Bill Marler, uh, who, run, who now runs Food Safety News. Uh, and they were, and they sued successfully. Um, and FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service, is still reacting to the fact that meat that passed uh, federal inspection killed people, okay? And Almost everything that FSIS does is because it is still acting out of a sense of shame and embarrassment that that happened, that it failed so badly as to the amount of fecal contamination in ground beef that kids died, okay? And so that was the 90s. So the meg, we call that the mega reg. The mega reg passed in 96 and then was fully enforced by 2000, 2001. At the same time, we had consolidation of the industry and a massive rise in concentrated animal feeding operations. And we had a lot of small companies that, that, that didn't want to, or the, and it really, it was much more the economics of meat and meat production became completely untenable with the economy that we had in the early aughts. So the mega reg came into being. Tons of small business, small meat and poultry processors went out of business, mostly because of economics. The mega reg didn't help. And so we have a, we had what what we what I've been calling the barbelling of the industry. So we have a whole bunch of really gigantic players, almost nobody in the middle. Okay, there's no such thing as a billion-dollar meat company, which, believe it or not, is kind of in the middle because, you know, JBS is a multi-billion-dollar company. Cargill is a multi-billion-dollar company. But there's no such thing as, like, a, a, a half-a-billion-dollar, you know, like, meat and poultry processing company. They just don't exist. They exist in other consumer packaged goods and food, but really not in the meat and poultry space. And then we have all these people over on the other end, but that's still only 5% of the meat that goes out there. So Cargill, JBS, Tyson, Swift, Armor, all those, Hormel, all those guys, 95% of the meat out there. The rest of us is like 5% of the meat out there. And that's totally fine, and I'm here to help you guys compete in that, right? 
But that's the history of what happened in meat and poultry. And then when they, when like, you know, USDA got themselves tied down, then we had the peanut butter outbreak and the spinach outbreak. Okay. And then we had a couple of smaller ones that also were very, very trying. Um, so everybody remembers the peanut butter outbreak. That was uh, Peanut Corporation of America down in Georgia knowingly shipped salmonella contained peanut butter base uh, um, that killed a lot of people. Um, and it, it was really, I mean, like they're like the people who did that are still in jail folks so don't do that if you know your product is contaminated contaminated don't ship it anyway and for the love of god don't send an email saying i know it has salmonella ship it anyway because that's what the email said so don't do that <laughs> so the peanut butter scandal happened and the fda did nothing to like had had no way of, of preventing that there really is no way of preventing bad actors guys there's no law we can pass to prevent bad actors so that happened. And then the spinach scandal. Okay, so then spinach was when um, we discovered that sugar toxin E. coli actually can walk up the inside of raw leafy green vegetables, which I promise you we didn't know before then. And I know the guy who originally planted that spinach field. That spinach field was a dairy dry off lot. So for all y'all who were dairy farmers, you know when you go to set your girls to dry off, you put them in a dry off lot, right? Dairy cattle, all cattle, are colonized with sugar toxin E. coli, and when they poop, it goes into the ground. Well, that ground hadn't lay fallow for particularly long, I don't think, and they uh, planted they planted spinach in it. So spinach is, of course, a, a commonly consumed raw, ready-to-eat vegetable, and um, that that field was what we call grade D spinach. Okay, so it didn't grow particularly well. It was particularly bruised, and we found out after the fact that shigatoxin E. coli grows really, really well in bruised spinach. There are plenty of sugars for it to eat. It really, really likes it. And so we have the spinach. We have the spinach scare. That precipitated two things: the Food Safety Modernization Act. Okay, um, which is a group of uh, seven different laws that did a bunch of different things. It uh, upgraded the uh, good manufacturing practices for food. It instituted foreign supplier verification. We created the produce rule, the animal feeds rule, preventive controls for human foods, the economic adulteration rule, and the transport rule. And then there's like this other rule that helps um, that helps uh, implement all of that, especially foreign supplier verification. All right, all of that stuff was based on failure mode effect analysis. They decided not to call it HACCP because I have no idea. Um, I, I have heard it's because there was a meeting between the FDA and the USDA where the FDA said HACCP is the USDA's, even though we have fisheries HACCP over on the FDA side of the house. So don't ask me. So we had FISMA passed. So all y'all who are... Um, who are regulated under FSMA, which is like everything that's not fish, juice, meat, and poultry, or low-acid canned food, um, are regulated under, under FSMA and the Preventive Controls Rule for Human Foods. So everybody had to be, like, if you don't fall under a qualified exemption, everybody had to be um, uh, compliant with that rule uh, with all their documentation last year, exemption or otherwise. And that was that always went in last year. Economic adulteration is going in next summer uh, for most people, and so July 26th is, I think, the date for economic adulteration. 
all of this stuff is based on these five core principles of pre-planning for your food safety plan. Okay, and of course, step one of the five pre-steps of your food safety plan is forming your food safety team. Okay, so now let's talk about what it actually means to form your food safety team now that you have all of that history <laughs> together. <laughs> okay, and it's important to understand that history because everybody has to be on board with this stuff. All right, food safety teams fail not because they don't know, it's because they don't care, because they say, here's a hoop, I have to jump through it. Let me help you guys, let me help you care about this, all right? Controlling for physical, chemical, and microbial hazards means something. Doing this well, okay, will create benefits in your business. You will create a more profitable business because you will work better, you will make decisions faster, and you will be more efficient. You have emotional benefits from doing your food safety planning well, okay? You will all feel better, I promise. I promise that the, the, the wholesome, for lack of a better word, feeling that comes from doing this well is really pretty good. You know, people get on the phone with me and they know I'm on their team and they're like, oh, thank God. It's relief. You will feel relief when you do this stuff, okay? And you do it together as a group and you work as a group together and are vulnerable to each other, which takes a lot of courage, my friends, to say, I don't know this. I'm not sure how we do it. I know I wrote the SOP, but I don't know that that's how we do it here. <laughs> okay, that takes a tremendous amount of vulnerability. Allow yourself to be vulnerable to your teammates, okay? So your food safety team should be a team that you can, that you can create, should be community that you can create where you can be vulnerable to each other, all right? That is a very powerful place from which you can create a food safety team. Okay, you are going to have physical benefits from doing your food safety planning well and creating a good food safety team because frankly, if nothing else, y'all gonna sleep better and you're gonna have fewer trip and fall hazards and fewer bend and stew back twisty kinds of hazards in your, in your workplace. And then finally, there are gonna be what we call spiritual benefits. Uh, and those are all about building the business that you were meant to build. Imagine going in and having a meeting around food safety that you felt like actually built your business. That's what happens when you pick a good food safety team. So who should be on your food safety team? Okay, so your food safety team kind of needs a food safety team captain. That person, it, at the very least, needs to be trained in whichever food safety plan you have to execute, okay? Which is either a preventive controls plan, a meat and poultry hazard plan, an FDA fisheries plan, a low acid canned food plan, a produce rule plan, a good agricultural practices plan. I mean, there are a couple out there. Um, not that many. Go get training. The head of your food safety team needs to have that training, my friends. All right, because they're gonna set the tone for, they're gonna set the tone for everybody. All right, so that's the first person who you need to have. You need to document who that is, what their position is, and what their training is. Next people that you should have on your food safety team. Okay, if you have QA techs and that, that first person isn't also the QA tech, put your two QA techs, but only one, not everybody. Put your best QA tech on the uh, food safety team. All right, you should also have somebody from finance on your food safety team because I promise you, your chief financial officer has no idea how expensive food safety planning can be and really has no idea about how expensive it can be if you do it badly. <laughs> 
All right, so that's your, so, so, so those are the first three people. Then you need people who actually touch the food. All right, so your shipping and receiving clerk is an excellent person to have on your food safety team because they know everything that's coming in and going out of your facility. So I love me a shipping and receiving clerk on your food safety team. If your shipping and receiving clerk doesn't have the training to understand food safety, you can use this as a development tool. And I promise in this um, employment environment, the better you can internally develop your own team, the better uh, you, the, the more likely you are to retain team members. Okay, I mean, it is, I mean, y'all see the job postings on, um, on, that I put up on the proofing box. I have people who come to me every week saying, Michelle, I need QA people. Michelle, I need somebody, I need a sanitation supervisor. I need a technical services manager. I need a QA tech. I need, I need somebody to run my whole business. I need a chief operating officer, okay? If you can learn how to develop those people internally, you're gonna be vastly ahead of the game. And to do that, you take the people with the promise, the people who show up on time, the people who are interested, and teach them the learned and learnable skills of QA. And we just start with HACCP planning. And then, no, they don't have to sign up for my HACCP course or my preventive controls course. You, the food safety team, you, the head, whoever has the training, can train them as they go, all right? Because I promise you miss more by not looking than by not knowing. And if you go back and you listen to the podcast around observations, start there. Teach everybody on your food safety team to do observations, and you will be light years ahead of the game, <laughs> okay? And so your food safety team should meet... And it's your food safety team that is gonna undertake the process of creating the decision-making documentation, all right? Your food safety plan, I promise, over the course of its lifetime, lives and dies on its, on its decision-making documentation. Three years from now, you are not going to remember why you made the decision you made around your validation documents unless you write it down, okay? <laughs> And that's what the food safety team does. You should have somebody take notes, all right? When you are writing your HACCP plan, your preventive controls plan or whatever, have somebody take notes, my friends. And then refer back to your notes and, and, and build, your, build your, 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 your food safety plan and your meetings around our proofing box model. What results are you trying to create from this team what results are you trying to create from this particular meeting? What's the process to get there, all right? If you teach yourselves everything is figureoutable, you will have superb meetings because you will spend your meetings not bitching about the USDA or the FDA or me or whatever. You will spend your meetings figuring out problems, okay? And then you are going to figure out, okay, if this is all the problems, and this is what we have to figure out. These are the hazards. This is the SOP. This is a prerequisite program we got to talk about, whatever it is. Then the question is, is how are we going to manage ourselves to lead and serve ourselves so that each individual on the team is 100% responsible for leading the team and doing the team's work? If you approach your food safety planning from the uh, uh, idea that everybody is 100% responsible for food safety in your facility, the chances that something is going to go dramatically wrong are reduced like you wouldn't believe, okay? And then if something does go dramatically wrong, your ability to fix it will be through the roof. 
All right, so that, my friends, is the first step in what we call the five pre-steps of food safety planning. So with that, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast, and y'all have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.